Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. My name is David Morgan. I am the Washington Healthcare Policy Correspondent for Reuters News Agency. And it is my distinct privilege and honor to be your moderator today for a discussion about the results of Tuesday's presidential election and their implications for U.S. healthcare policy. We have with us a courageous studio audience who braved a nor'easter to be here to listen to this discussion. There are also hundreds, if not thousands, of people listening online and watching via webcast across the country and around the world. This event is a collaboration of Reuters and the Harvard School of Public Health, hence my presence here. And as I speak, Reuters is live blogging the event at www.reuters.com. Now, we have with us a distinguished panel of experts to discuss the elections and the future of healthcare. So why don't I just go straight to introductions? First, a man who needs no introduction, but I will introduce you anyway, is uh, Bob Blendon. He is professor of health policy and political analysis here at the Harvard School of Public Health. He also directs the Harvard Opinion Research Program, which focuses on creating a better understanding of public and voter knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs. To his left is John McDonough, professor of public health practice at the Harvard School of Public Health and director of the school's Center for Public Health Leadership. It's worth noting that John, between 2008 and 2010, was also in the trenches on Capitol Hill. He was senior advisor on the national health reform, on national health reform to the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. To John's left is Kate Baker, professor of health economics in the Department of Health Policy and Management here at Harvard. She's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and an elected member of the Institute of Medicine. Last but in no way least is Arnie Epstein, John H. Foster Professor and Chairman of the Department of Health Policy and Management here at the Harvard School of Public Health. He is also Chief of the Section on Health Services and Policy Research at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Epstein's research interests focus on care for disadvantaged populations. So here's the format. Our panelists will discuss the issues of the moment for about 15 minutes and then we'll go straight to questions from our studio audience and from our online audience. And why don't we be begin with the observation that the voters have spoken, but we don't know what they said. So for the answer to that question, we turn to Bob Blendon. Uh, so David, if you stayed up that night, you caught commentators who said this was a status quo election. In US healthcare, that's not correct. Uh, basically, since 210, the Affordable Care Act, which is the largest piece of legislation since Medicare, uh, was uh, on the table for repeal. Half of America does not like this bill, and two-thirds of Governor Romney's voters didn't either. 
And at the end of the day, the president won. His voters want this bill implemented. Not only implemented, half want it, in fact, enlarged. So uh, for U.S. history, that's over. Now, there are two status quo things that also did come out of this election. Uh, Vice President Ryan led a new idea about what to do with the troubled future of Medicare. And depending on where you stood, it, one side it was uh, using a premium support, a fixed amount of money if you retired, to purchase among private plans and Medicare, or if you're the president, you called it a voucher. Either way, the majority of voters who voted for the president said, your best Mr. President on Medicare, no way Vice President Ryan. Uh, Vice President Candidate Ryan. So the issue of changing Medicare in this term is off the table. Uh, thirdly, for health policy audience, they're often quite shocked. Abortion was a major issue in this election. And basically what the president's voters said is, I don't want any additional restrictions on abortion. Uh, the issue of rape and abortion is off the U.S. voting table on the national level. But before I finish, there are two caveats, because the party in the United States is not one vote. So the same voters elected the House of Representatives of Republicans. Each of them ran on a single message, repeal the health care bill, repeal the health care bill. So uh, they can't repeal it, but they do not have to expand it fund it all, and that's how they're going to behave. And when you watch their votes, their voters said to them, don't do this. So they're not going to at all be troubled that if there is a discretion on budgetary arguments, that they vote the other way. Uh, similarly, let me just close, 30 governors are now Republicans. They, for those from not uh, this country, that's 30 out of 50. Uh, they ran on the following thing. I don't like the Affordable Care Act for my state. I don't want to spend more money. I'm going to cut my taxes. We're not going to expand Medicaid. What you need to know is that half the uninsured in the Affordable Care Act would be covered by Medicaid. And most of them live in the 30 states that have those governors. So uh, this issue is settled in the broader sense. The U.S. has a national health plan. The voters who voted for the president wanted it. But what it looks like two years from now, that will still be a matter of politics. John. So thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. So by my count, this is health reform's third near-death experience that it has survived. The first was on January 19th, 2010, when Scott Brown was elected to uh, the late Senator Edward Kennedy's seat, and most people thought the law was dead and would not reach the president's desk, and it did. The second was the Supreme Court process, which ended in late June of this year, and many people were surprised that the court upheld the law. And then the third was on Tuesday, when a different outcome in the elections could have meant certain repeal or near elimination of the law. So the important issue is that the law moves forward and survives. And looking ahead then, in terms of the implications, there are many, and it is in the administration, it's in the Congress, and it is in the states. In the administration, we are going to see very quickly a flurry of regulations and sets of rules coming out that will define the shape of how this law is going to look. Much of those were frankly held back until the election to avoid creating controversy, and some of those are going to make waves. And this is a very challenging law in terms of implementation, regardless of all of the other things going on. 
Uh, the second thing is then there are many issues around the Congress. There is the fiscal cliff that's coming up at the end of the year, and the Affordable Care Act will be on the table in terms of some of its funding. There will be proposals made by parties to delay implementation for two years in the name of fiscal stability, and some of it will be seen as a device to try to create another opportunity for elimination and repeal. Uh, there's also the issue of congressional funding of the law moving forward, not so much in terms of the major expansions, but in terms of, for example, funding a federal exchange, which goes into effect in states that choose not to create their own exchanges. And there's, you know, there's a lot of irony in this because uh, the preference of most Democrats in Congress during the law was to create a single federal national exchange. It would be simpler, it would be easier, and it was the moderate conservatives in the Senate who said, no, we have to respect the states and defer to the states, particularly the more conservative states that won't want the federal government coming in. And the irony may be we may end up with a very sizable federal health insurance exchange in spite of the designs of the people who created the law and crafted the law. So there, there are many ironies in that. There are most states right now are not on a path to create their own exchanges. So there will be some kind of a federal fallback and there are real concerns about how robust and ready it will be, but it is going to happen because there's no other alternative. And then the last major decision point is whether or not to expand Medicaid or not in states because the Supreme Court gave states that choice last June in a way that was not anticipated at all by the designers of the law. And we could see for perhaps the first time Medicaid, and in particular this Medicaid expansion, become a significant part of the political discourse and the political campaigns because many of these governors who are refusing to implement the law or saying they don't want to move forward are up for election in 2014. So we could see Medicaid become a hyper-politicized issue in a way that we've never seen before. So there's a lot ahead. Fascinating. Kate? I couldn't agree with John more that the implementation challenges are huge and that the weight that had been uh, the pause before the ratification by the election was really, I think, dangerous in terms of being able to roll out things on schedule. States have a lot of tough choices to make about how to structure their exchanges, and the federal government has a lot of difficulties in terms of implementing the credits that will enable people to buy insurance on the exchanges, in terms of determining eligibility, who's eligible for Medicaid under the new rules versus the old rules. These complications have real import for actual coverage under the law, and until we see how the regulatory environment plays out, it's very hard to know how the law is going to affect actual coverage as opposed to just eligibility that we've seen in the estimates. And that uh, then gets, I think, to the two main goals of health reform that I think people would agree with regardless of what they think the solutions are, and that's expanding coverage versus slowing healthcare spending growth. And expanding coverage is something we actually know how to do pretty well. There's a lot of disagreement about the most effective way to do it, whether it's through public insurance, whether it's through exchanges, but we all kind of know that if you devote enough money and resources to the problem, you can get people insured and that they then have some health gains. And there's some disagreement about whether those gains warrant the costs or not, but it's something that we understand a lot better from a policy empirical perspective. 
The second question of slowing healthcare spending growth, I think, is much thornier, and there's much more uncertainty about how the law, as it's written now, would actually affect spending trajectories and how any modifications to the law would dial up or down that effect on whether we're getting higher value care and spending a little bit less, especially in our public programs. And I hope that there's room for modification going forward as we see what works and what doesn't work, because there was so much more uncertainty with all of the tools in the toolkit, which one was going to be most effective when deployed. If we don't have the freedom to adapt as we see what's working and what's not working, then I think the potential to slow spending growth is really endangered. So I'm optimistic that going forward there will be some possibility of cooperation, especially in the realm of Medicare, which as Bob said, major modifications to Medicare are off the table. But I think most observers would agree that the current trajectory is unsustainable and that minor tweaks around the edges will still bankrupt us in the not too distant future. So. I hope those come back on the table at some point in the not too distant future before we have debt to GDP ratios that make us look like Greece. <laughs> Thank you. Arnie. Thanks, David. I want to say a few words really that are going to complement what um, you folks have said before and talk about the delivery system. I have a doctor's bias that at the end of the day, whether we succeed or not is going to be determined by what happens with docs and their patients. And that's going to be the test. Um, first and foremost, this was a, l a law about expanding access. No question about it. We hope to get more than 30 million people insured who have heretofore been uninsured. In the private sector, that's through subsidies and uh, the mandate. And among indigent populations, that's through the expansion of Medicaid. But tethered to those really important provisions on insurance access are some other ideas and notions and programs that are going to transform, I think, or certainly move the delivery system. And I want to talk about two. One is the incentives we have to move us from oh, traditional fee-for-service practice to closest something to shared savings and integrated care. And the other is to empower doctors, nurses, and other providers with new tools that they haven't had before. Um, the first starts out with things like the Accountable Care Organization. These are uh, constellations of providers who come together, agree to care for defined populations, will meet quality standards, and if they're successful in producing better value care and lower cost, they can share in those savings. Major change for us. Another idea is bundling. Um, taking the services, oh, take a high cost operation like cardiac surgery, total knee replacement, total hip replacement, getting all the relevant pro providers, the hospital, the doctor, the post-discharge rehab care, if it's rehospitalization, that, that care, put it all under one single price and in a sense force them to all work together to integrate that system. Or we've just seen last month uh, an another provision from the ACA which has gone forward, which is the penalties on hospitals for excess rates of readmission and rehospitalization. And these are not rehospitalizations that occur two or three days after discharge, when you'd say, well, the hospital deserves it, they didn't do a very good job with discharge, or they didn't do a good job with transitional care. These are hospitalizations that take place three and four weeks later, when the patient is ensconced in the ambulatory care system. And it's a very clear clarion call to providers that hospitals have got to work with those ambulatory providers, or we're not going to be successful in this regard. Now you take all those programs designed to move us ahead towards integration, and they only go so far without tools. And so the ACA and its antecedent 
divine that started first with some incentives to increase the spread of information technology through meaningful use provisions. And more recently, with the ACA, has established an organization called PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute. That's an organization with more than half a billion dollars a year to give away for funding research, but not the kind of research that heretofore has been dominated by the NIH, basic science and relational science. This is for research on comparative effectiveness of diagnostic tools, of therapies, of medications, to try to answer the questions that nurses and doctors and other providers need to know to take good care of their patients, to do their job. Now, if you step back just a moment and think of the two different movements here, one towards more integrated care, shared savings, and the other towards better information and tools, they really lock together. You can have the incentives, but without the tools to provide higher value care, you don't get very far. And you can have the tools to do it, but if you don't have incentives to do it, you don't get very far. And so this is really a coordinated approach. And I'm hopeful with the election now behind us and us moving unsteadily, as, as we've heard from John and Kate and Bob, towards the ACA getting implemented, that our movement towards these sorts of the changes in the delivery system, which I think will be positive, will take place as well. Well, that's terrific. It's time now to move on to questions. We'll start with our studio audience here. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Cohn, I'm a cardiac surgeon at a nearby community hospital called the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I have a question that puzzled the heck out of me when I saw this law when it came out. And it's about innovation and new discovery, particularly with medical device technology. Why, and for God's name, are we taxing these new, pe these new companies with new innovation when many uh, experts say innovation is the only key to low-cost health care? Michael Porter, Harvard Business School, would say that. And why are we putting such an onus on these device companies who, A, employ a lot of people, B, uh, which is good in this country, and B, help get better treatment? Is that, in your opinion, is that a, a way to decrease innovation so we won't have new expensive toys to play with at these neighborhood hospitals? Or is it something that I, I don't understand? Mm -hmm. Kate, would you like to take this one? Sure, I'll start, and I bet other people have some opinions as well. I think the question of innovation that you raise is key because we want to design a system that promotes innovation. Life-saving medical innovation is a wonderful thing, and if you tax it too highly or you um, regulate it out of existence, then we all suffer. On the other hand, there's a limit to how much our public programs can pay for. And a world in which we subsidize the most expensive technology, regardless of the health benefit it produces, is a world in which we have public programs that bankrupt us. So there's a balancing act there. Now, whether taxing device manufacturers is the right way to strike that balance is, um, I doubt that that's the right answer to striking the balance. But I don't think the system we had before was the right answer either. Uh, in that our public programs right now, Medicare for example, will pay for lots of care that is very expensive but has no additional benefit to beneficiaries in terms of improved health or improved outcomes relative to less costly options. And I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to say that to ensure that our public programs can give basic 
high value care to everyone. We need to limit the public subsidization of care that has very low value per dollar spent. And PCORI is one way of getting us more information about what the real value is because there's a world of medicine where we don't know what the value is and then it's very hard to make informed policy decisions. I'll leave though with one parting shot about your, your statement about the jobs ensconced in those industries. It has been very tempting in the public policy debate to tie these two issues of rising healthcare costs and jobs together because everyone's in favor of jobs, right? We want the economy to recover and we know jobs are good. But I think it's a real red herring to say we need to protect specific healthcare industries because they have a lot of jobs and jobs are good. I think that's the wrong approach to health policy because that goal is incompatible with the goal of having affordable healthcare for everyone in the economy. If we could achieve the same health outcomes with half the personnel, that would be a good thing because those people could then go to more productive sectors of the economy, we would all have more money to spend on other things and health would be just as good. Now that's not to say that jobs in any particular industry are not being productive. I'm not trying to pick winners and losers. What I'm saying is that the goal of directing jobs to any particular sector, healthcare or any other, is not the way to grow the economy. The way to grow the economy is to let jobs go where they're most productive. And if we want affordable health care, we need to produce health care as effectively as possible. And that doesn't mean more people regardless of the health. That means only having people employed when it's producing good health outcomes. John, do you have something to add to that? Well, without getting into the merits, I think I might be able to answer your question about why is it there. And the reason it's there is because there was a policy decision made at the start of the process that the Affordable Care Act would be self-financed that it would be paid for in a way that did not add to the federal deficit. Unlike, for example, the 2003 law that created the Medicare Part D drug program, which was 75% put onto the federal deficit. It's funded by, as Mitt Romney would say, China. <laughs> uh, so there was a decision made that this law was going to be paid for. And then the question is, so who's going to pay? And there was a decision made, about half of the money was raised through savings and reductions in the Medicare program affecting insurers, hospitals, hospices, home health care industry, others, clinical labs and others. And then there were another set of new revenue measures that were put on, again, insurance companies, on drug companies, on medical device makers as well. So there was a sense of a shared responsibility that the whole health industry was going to benefit and thus everyone in the health industry had to contribute in some way because there was economic analysis that we had that said that 32 million newly insured Americans, some of that benefit is going to come back to that industry. And so that is why it was put in there. There are new taxes on high income earners, but for the most part, it was a sense that this should be self-financed. And it was uh, Senator Bacchus from the Senate Finance Committee who really said it should be self-financed from within the healthcare sector itself. Terrific. For our next question, why don't we go to our audience in cyberspace? We have a lot of questions coming in. So I'll start with this one. Question from Colleen Vessel. In the states that voted for ballot initiatives to limit the ACA in their state, like Florida, what effect, if any, will this have on the enactment of the law in those states? 
Uh, and with John also, uh, basically uh, the national law dominates the decisions that's true constitutionally. So the ballot initiatives were always symbolic. Uh, that is, once the national law was passed, states could not secede from the nas national law. So the answer is Florida will be uh, part of this, uh, but there's some pieces of this that the governor, this current governor, will do everything possible to slow down. But this Florida is part of the national law. Sure. I, I actually, I mean, I think the Florida law actually went down to defeat the Florida referendum. I'm, I, uh, we need to probably check yeah. on that. But one, one law that did go through, which will have an impact, is in Missouri. Yes, right. Missouri, the voters passed a law saying that the governor can do nothing to set up a state exchange mm -hmm. unless the legislature, which is Republican-dominated and very opposed to the ACA, or the voters were to approve something authorizing him to do it. So that means essentially that m the Missouri voters have decided we're going with the federal fallback. But the law would still cover people yes. in Missouri, right? Mm -hmm. Who else has a question here in the studio audience? I think there were a couple of hands that went up. This gentleman. Good morning. Thanks for being here. I'm Andrew Maron from the uh, Center for Health Communication here at HSPH. Um, I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, how how well did uh, you know since 2010 did the needle get moved for people understanding their entitlements uh, to understanding you know the programs that they're actually in you know and how much how much was perhaps refreshing for you guys to see that you know unlike the last election we aren't dealing with you know death panels uh, the worst you know you know, uh, buzzword was uh, Obamacare. So how much did this move the needle on how, you know, people understand what is theirs and in, in, uh, in, in what it costs? Bob? Uh, it's gonna be disappointing. Uh, very little. Uh, so uh, people understand when you're on Medicare and Social Security, people actually do know, plus the programs do an incredible amount so beneficiaries understand. Uh, basically, except for most people not believing a death panel exists, this is a hypothetical law, and if I didn't like it, I don't understand it. If I like it, I think it's kind of a good thing and it helps out people. But actually, there's a whole series, and so it's a lesson for people who are in communications. We overstate the ability to change people's views and understanding of things they may not like. Uh, and so initially, the first 90 days was the time to get people to believe that this might really have helped them out. They didn't use that 90 days the way a lot of people would have done. By the 91st day, one half of America said, bad thing, bad idea, I'm too busy to listen. And it never changed after that. John. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Enough said. Well, let me ask Bob a question. Uh, during the campaign, what much was made about Paul Ryan's plan for Medicare. And it seems now to have gone by the board. Some people say that the, the campaign made the political climate surrounding that policy proposal too toxic to go forward. Do you think that there is a, a chance that it can succeed at some point in the, in the yeah. future? First, it's important for students to know professors admit they were wrong. 
I happen to be quite wrong on this issue. So uh, I happen to be quite uh, uh, quoted early saying that this was going to be a winning strategy for Nancy Pelosi to take the House back uh, for Democratic Party by basically emphasizing in millions of dollars of ads how this change in Medicare would not be the best interest for long-term people, uh, long-term retirees. It turns out every poll, it doesn't matter how you described it, finds people do not like the idea. Okay, why was uh, I wrong, et cetera? Basically, not a single older person changed their mind to vote. Uh, Governor Romney won the majority of people over age 65 in, uh, across the board and in Florida. And if you were in Florida, you were sweating by grandma being pushed over uh, the side about this proposal. What that is going to say to Republican policymakers are, we lost, Obama gets his Medicare, that's where we're going. But if we come back someday, it's wrong. Don't tell us that we can't have the House because or the presidency because of this bill. It didn't work out that way. My view is you will see Paul Ryan's type proposal reemerge, not in this administration, in the next presidential campaign, because it did not move voters the way people like myself thought it would have. That's and, fascinating. And I'd love to add that this idea of a voucher or premium support or you know defined benefits you know or originally happened uh, was a proposal of a left-leaning group of people originally and has over time been embraced by lots of different people across the political spectrum and it's associated most strongly with Ryan now but i think there's some strong underlying economic arguments that suggest it's not such a bad way to go and that the generosity of the plan very much affects winners and losers right. and how yeah. current seniors would fare, but that you could dial a plan that's structured like that up or down and have very different distributional effects while trying to improve the efficiency of delivery. So I hope that the fundamental idea doesn't die yeah. and will come back in one form or another, maybe proposed by a very different group of people. What are the underlying economic arguments in favor of it? Well, it goes back to the point that I was making earlier about Medicare paying for a virtually unlimited set of benefits on a fee-for-service basis. Right now, about 75% of Medicare beneficiaries are in a fee-for-service plan where any care that's covered by Medicare is reimbursed, regardless of how much it improves health relative to a less costly alternative. And to me, that seems unsustainable over the long run, in part because of the miracle of modern medical innovation. It's wonderful that we have all of these new treatments, but there's no way that our public programs can afford in the long run to pay for all care for all people, because that would be more than 100% of GDP, and we also like food and shelter and roads and things like that. Mm -hmm. So once you're going to preserve some of the budget for other things. You have to make some tough decisions about what to cover. And one way to do that is to say, we're going to ensure a basic set of benefits for everyone, and then let higher income people buy more things that are progressively less and less effective if they so choose. And one mechanism for implementing that is a fixed benefit that everyone gets in the form of a voucher, in the form of a public program. There are lots of manifestations of that. But the fundamental idea is that by guaranteeing a basic package for everyone, the public program becomes affordable while not restricting people who have the ability to pay for more from buying as much medical care as they would like. Understood. The bill got, as you know, the bill got uh, sponsorship not only from Ryan, but from Ron Ryden mm -hmm. in the Senate. It's called Wyden-Ryan bill at this point. And that bill changed a little bit, 
But as you say, the issue is the devil's in the details. If you give enough subsidies to poor people and you pay enough for the basic bill, you get some of the benefits are, which is what you want to do is make Mr. Jones and Mrs. Jones sensitive to how much they're spending for their medical care. Fascinating. Um, does anyone in the audience have any questions about this particular topic, Medicare generally? Yes, this gentleman in the middle, please. Um, my name is Greg Kerfman. Uh, I'm on the editorial staff of the New England Journal of Medicine. And staying on the, the Medicare theme, um, the budget sequester contains uh, a 2% mandatory cut in the Medicare program. So my question to you is, if that survives and goes forward, what would the impact of that cut be? And the second part of the question is, uh, is this a negotiable part of the sequester uh, discussions that are going to be unfolding uh, in the coming coming weeks. In other words, could, could that be reversed? John? Everything in the sequester is subject to negotiation at this point. And everything is on the table. And it's the sequestration. It's the expiration of the tax cuts. It is also the uh, sustainable growth rate, the Medicare doc fix, which also expires on December 31st. So there are a host of issues. And while one issue is off the table in one of those versus another, when you put them all together, there's little except perhaps Social Security that is really genuinely pretty much off the table. So it could happen. And, and, and I don't think the details would resemble sequestration. The question is how close to the cliff they get and do they actually go off the cliff and then have to backpedal and rearrange after they've fallen off the cliff. And I don't think we know enough right now about how that's going to go. Any guesses as to what the effect on actual delivery of health care would be if there were a 2% cut for Medicare providers? I'm going to guess and say near term, there'd be a lot of screaming and yelling in the delivery systems for providers who have their rates cut. Mm -hmm. Thus far, we haven't gotten to the point where the surveys tell us that access has been impaired. And at the end of the day, that's the real issue for someone who's got fiduciary responsibility for Medicare beneficiaries. What they've got to be concerned about is that if we keep on cutting rates down, at some point, people will leave the system and do what essentially psychiatrists have done. You can't get a, you can't get a psychiatrist to easily see a Medicare patient anymore. Um, we don't want that to spread across the delivery system. Um, I have a question for you, Kate. Uh, the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development studies national healthcare systems. And two things distinguish the U.S. healthcare system. One is that it is far and away the most expensive in the world. The second is that unlike other industrialized nations, the U.S. system has no mechanism for control, controlling prices. Now, one might think there would be a connection between those two facts. Um, but there's much talk now about the need for further healthcare legislation specifically to control costs. Do you think that there are tools ready to hand that could be implemented to try to bend the cost curve, as people say? And can you elaborate a little bit on what those might be? Sure. I think it's, it's really important to distinguish, as you have when we look at spending, between quantity and price. And mm. sometimes when people say cost, they're not 
so clear in their minds about whether they're thinking about total utilization, times prices, or just the prices. And there's a real debate about the degree to which our costs in the U.S. are higher than the rest of the world, or our spending is higher, because quantities are higher, because prices per service are higher, because people are entering the healthcare system in worse shape and requiring more care. And that's one of the um, important caveats in doing international comparisons. People like to point to the fact that the U.S. is much more expensive than other countries and that our outcomes are no better to say, therefore, the healthcare system must be inefficient. Now, I agree that the healthcare system is inefficient and that there are lots of improvements we could make, but we also have a lot of inputs into health that are different than other countries and that are cost drivers, such as you know, nutrition, exercise, environmental hazards. We enter the health system in much worse shape than our European counterparts on lots of dimensions, and then it's more expensive to achieve the same health outcome. So I'd love for us to incorporate into any discussion about improving the efficiency of delivery the public health system that's beyond healthcare. Putting that aside, there are a number of pilots in the Affordable Care Act that attempt to try to bend the cost curve. I'm not sure how effective they are likely to be. I think the jury is still out on whether tools like accountable care organizations that aim to give providers an incentive to move towards more efficient delivery, health IT that attempts to you know, reduce duplicated tests, to get people to move through the system more effectively. Arnie gave a great example of the handoff between hospital and post-acute care providers. And we know that there's a lot of failure of communication and coordination that leads to both expense and worse outcomes in all of those handoffs. And that's a function of our very siloed system of paying for things. Medicare pays for hospitals. Medicare pays for acute care, post-acute care. Medicare pays for providers. Medicare Part D pays for drugs. And these are for the most part completely uncoordinated so it's not surprising that we end up with inefficient delivery when the patient is still the same patient moving from silo to silo. So I, I hope that those tools will be effective but I think there's very little evidence to support that they will be and that evidence will be forthcoming as we see what happens when the pilots play out and I hope that then they can be given bigger scale and more teeth to actually bind on more of the system. Honey, do you have anything to add to this? I think we're bound the next four years for a period of experimentation. We may get, as Bob foreshadowed, back to premium support in a future edition, but it's going to be experimentation, and it's going to be broad-based, and some of it's going to be at the level of the state. Massachusetts, a terrific example, adopting Chapter 224 for its own system, trying to move towards cost containment. I think we're going to see a variety of other experiments that have to do with alternatives to traditional fee-for-service, the bundling, the readmission, the complications that we're all going to start changing how we pay in the ACOs. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to leverage off some of the exchanges, is my guess, that they we're going to ask some of the, those state-based exchanges, their states, will ask them not only to have a state-based exchange, but to be a very activist purchaser to try and use that to bring down the cost and may even have tiered products, as we're seeing in Massachusetts Exchange, um, products where people can have an incentive to go with a cheaper plan and save money for it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, that's what we're going to see in the next four to eight years. Mm -hmm. One of the elements of the Affordable Care Act intended to control costs is a board of, well, they've been described as faceless, nameless bureaucrats by some Republicans. <laughs> 
Uh, Abe. Some others called them professors. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Obviously, no one here. Everyone here has a face and a name. But um, but this uh, this board has uh, been designed to control the cost of Medicare per capita, uh, and to come up with ways for Medicare to save money if costs begin to exceed a target. However, this is one of the favorite targets of the Republicans uh, in Congress. And now that we're entering uh, the deficit reduction fiscal cliff phase, do you see this as something that will succeed either politically or uh, financially? Well, so uh, Eric Cantor, the House Minority Leader, just yesterday suggested that one of the things that Republicans would focus on would be to repeal this board. And the difficulty is, of course, is that the Congressional Budget Office estimates that the implementation of this board will actually reduce federal spending. And so they are expecting that it's going to work. And so if you repeal it, then you have to make up that funding from some other place. At the same time, when the law was written, it was intended that the IPAB, as it's called, the, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, would be triggered no later than 2015. And in truth, um, because Medicare spending has grown at a significantly lower rate than we expected even back when the ACA was signed, the projections now are that this board wouldn't be triggered before 2018 or 2019 or even later. Mm. So quite frankly, if we're looking for some ways to get some accommodations and make some deals and agreements with the other side, you know, we could, we could do a lot more damage than giving up on that. Terrific. Let's go back to questions from the audience. There's a gentleman sitting here with a scarf. Can you pass the microphone to him, please, Hernando? Thank you. Um, I'm Lucas Atoka, I'm, and I'm a student of the Master of Public Health on Health Policy uh, here at the School of Public Health. Um, after the election, the social media was flooded with uh, a lot of comments of uh, um, ACA detractors saying that um, after the re-election of the president, now they had to move to Canada or Australia. Um, when I left Sydney a few months ago, we had universal healthcare. But uh, going in similar lines, I think a big difference between our system and your system is that we have a, like a major emphasis in primary care and prevention activities as opposed to tertiary high-cost hospital care. Um, do you think um, the ACA fails a little bit at delivering a more primary care focus um, healthcare, or it actually um, includes an increase in the delivery of that mode of care? Arnie, would you like to take this? Yeah, I'd be glad to. The ACA has a number of different provisions and supports towards prevention, towards primary care, towards medical homes, and especially towards quality reporting. And, and quality improvement. There are provisions in there that are going to dramatically expand the information, make much more transparent the information that a patient can get about his or her doctor, and that physicians will be brought in starting in the year 2015, going out to 2017, to the system they call it, it's in the ACA, it's called value-based purchasing. And what it means is providing subsidized payment for doctors, extra payments for higher quality of care. So those are really directed much more primary care-oriented focus. And the ACOs that I've talked about, the integrated care, they're certainly not going to meet their cost targets by hiring lots and lots of very expensive specialists to do refined procedures. It's going to be by delivering primary care, 
keeping people out of hospitals, keeping people away from expensive procedures where, where they can. John? I, and since we're talking international comparisons, just have to add one other thing. So, you know, there are 25 nations around the globe that are considered our most advanced nations, and the United States is one of them. And we're the only one of those 25 that permits our fellow citizens to suffer financial ruin because they get sick. We're the only one that does that, and the ACA is our path to finally get away from being in that shameful category. I mean, if, if this is what we mean by American exceptionalism, leave me out. <laughs> um, and so there are some other compelling international dimensions worth considering, and we are finally moving other nations um, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Nigeria, South Africa are all struggling to move to get to that place and some of them are way beyond us and so it's just so long overdue for us to catch up with this basic way to treat our fellow humans in our society. Do we have any more questions from the online audience? Thanks, we do. We have a lot of questions. This is from Alabama from Gil Trainer. I would be interested in hearing if they think military, specifically VA benefits, healthcare benefits, are going to be changed going into the future with military spending cuts in the implementation of the ACA. Mm, who would like to take that one? Not at all. Nothing, nothing in the ACA would do anything to harm either the military health system called TRICARE or the Veterans Health Administration at all. It's not in there. Um, it, it might be, it could get on the table in the budget negotiations process at the end of the year in some way, but there's nothing in the ACA that has any harmful effect as opposed to just expanding benefits for veterans in different ways. Yeah. Our online audience has been a little neglected, I think, so far. Do we have any other questions? This is another question from Alabama. There's a chat going on about Alabama. <laughs> Please address practicalities after Alabama voters just approved an amendment to the Constitution of Alabama of 1901 to prohibit any person, employer, or health care provider from being compelled to participate in any health care system. We, we kind of addressed that in 1865 yeah. <laughs> with the Civil War. That's a settled, that's settled law. Oh, oh no, right not now. that again. <laughs> so uh, as, as, as John said again, they can opt out of uh, being part of this exchange. They don't have to add Medicaid, but the rest of the law is the law of the land. And so, as John says, this has been going on for a long time, and basically the national carries it. And, okay. oh, and I yeah. absolutely agree with all of that, but it's also an opportunity to make the broader point that states do play a really large role in how the law is actually going to affect right. people. That uh, because states who opt to have their own exchanges and their own insurance regulatory environment, because they run their own Medicaid programs, the practical import of the law actually varies a great deal across states and states have a lot of freedom in choosing the parameters of their programs. And we see a lot of variation in what Medicaid programs look like from state to state. What they cover, how much they reimburse providers, their outreach efforts. There was an earlier question about enrollment relative to eligibility, and there's a really wide spread of take-up rates 
among eligible uh, beneficiaries from mm -hmm. children to the sick and disabled across states. And that's governed in large part by how difficult the application process is, how aggressive the state outreach effort is. And there are arguments to be made that, you know, the people who are most eager to enroll are those who take up and those are the ones who benefit the most. Or there are arguments to be made that the people who don't enroll are actually the ones who are least connected to the social service infrastructure and need the most help. And states have answered those questions differently, despite the fact that federal law trumps state law without question, I wouldn't want to minimize the important role the states yes, play in right. governing who actually gets what services and how efficiently they're delivered from coordinated care to uncoordinated care. Hmm. I think, John, you mentioned that state regulators will play an important role in how the Affordable Care Act comes to earth within their boundaries. Did you not? If or they choose to. If they choose if to. They, it's, their, it's their choice. If they choose to, then they have the right to step in and set up an exchange and manage it, and they have a lot of discretion. Mm -hmm. And if they choose not to, then the federal government will come in and do it for them. And the federal government, at the moment, it looks as though the federal government will be doing that in a number of states, doesn't it? As, as many yeah. right now, potentially, as 30, hmm. and, and some very large ones. So, so we're talking about a robust new hmm. federal bureaucracy to run this exchange courtesy of the states, the conservative states, that, like that are saying no. <laughs> right. The only footnote is they don't have a budget to do it, right. and it has to pass the House. So it's going to be an interesting six months to get from Alabama back to this, back to who's going to pay for the problem. I'll trade you the IPAB yeah. for the funding for the federal exchange. <laughs> I think that may happen. It, it, is there a logistical hurdle as well? Oh, I sure. This um, has never been done before, has it? All, all of this is new, and it's certainly on the exchange where states can go in and out. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, but when they go out on the exchange, they get the federal exchange. In Medicaid, they don't have to join at all. And for many states, they're worried about that. I think now that we've got a new president and we've got at least four more years of Mr. Obama, I think some of the states that were heretofore saying they were reluctant to go in, I think they may change their mind, certainly about the Medicaid decision. I think we had some more questions here in the studio audience. I'm sure I saw a hand go up there. I knew I was right. Uh, I'm Adrian Germain. I'm here at the school as a mental fellow. Uh, in policy, and I'd, I'd like to ask a bit about the constituencies that might or might not be um, lobbying Congress at this point. Uh, given the centrality of the budget issue, if I've understood correctly, who's pushing for what, and how important is that dimension of the political process? Well, I, I want to make a point here. In, in the future, and John uh, introduced this, we're discussing things about sequestration and budgets and agreements. You have to understand to the general public, sequestration is a horse. They have no idea what this is. So what's going to happen, the biggest organizations in America are geared up like freight trains, defense, energy, education. And the end of the day, somebody's going to get a lot less out of this agreement. And so, uh, for those of us who worry a little bit about public health here, I'm not sure when a train is all done that you could have the smallest little, little issue. But the 
budget debate is going to be huge because buried in the polls is a simple one question which says, do you want your taxes raised to deal with this deficit? And most Americans said, no, they want other people's taxes raised. <laughs> and so uh, what you're going to have is this huge battle. Yes, 250,000. And then everything else, somebody's going to win or lose. And it's like football teams coming down the, the stream. You'll be seeing ads in the papers. Don't have a lack of Navy. Don't lack of this. Don't lack of that. And the question is, are we going to lack anything in health at the end of this? But this could be a really big battle uh, in terms of where the funds are, including whether or not we're going to put more funds in the support the ACA. There were lobbyists for everything. I, I gather there were even lobbyists for horses and bayonets. <laughs> <laughs> even today. Yeah. Do we have another question from the audience? I'm Dr. Larry Cohen, the blue-collar cardiac surgeon from the, <laughs> around the corner. It always mystified me when the, this whole health care bill that Mr. Obama put forth, while well, he never, or his lieutenants, never sat down with the purveyors or the leaders of the highest cost health care items in the whole country, such as orthopedic surgeons, cardiovascular, and, and, and get some mutual agreements as to what should be funded and what should not be funded. It, I, is there any possibility that can ever come about again? For example, there is an insurance plan in this country they will not pay for more than two coronary stents in an artery. And they say, and I'm not going to mention the name of the insurance plan, uh, they say if you need more than two stents, you're going to get a coronary bypass operation because we know that's a better thing. That's a comparative effectiveness again. But I don't know why or is it impossible for the leaders in Washington to sit down with the purveyors of the very high-cost health care like orthopedics, like cardiovascular, and say, let's come together on something that you agree is necessary to pay for, and we will pay for it, but we won't pay for 10 stents in a single coronary artery, which I have seen personally in patients being done for other reasons than health. I assume John was right there in the trenches at the time. So, so. so I recall taking a trip over from Capitol Hill to the offices of the American Medical Association to meet with them and their physician specialty partner groups. And I went into the room, and there were about 120 people there. And each one was a different group. And each one we went around. It took about two hours to do just the introductions. And they would stand up and make a little talk about you know, what they wanted to see. And the interesting thing was how many of them actually fiercely disagreed with each other. And so, but they are sitting down every day. Uh, they have people. There are conversations going on every day between just about every association. The American College of Cardiology is, is, is very active and is all over Capitol Hill talking with people all the time. But there was a decision made on Capitol Hill in the process of the ACA that there were just on, there were so many physician groups in addition to so many hospital groups and so many others that the AMA was really put in the position of being the spokesperson for organized physicians for better or worse. Um, but that was the choice because there was just so many, and, and it's just it's impossible to deal with in, in a legislative process with everybody else that wants a piece of the action, about 120 physician specialty groups. It's also very hard to ask people, how much of what you do is worthwhile, and how much should we not fund? It turns out that 
people think what they do is worthwhile, and that's a good thing, but each group would argue that what it does on the margin benefits patients, and on the margin it may benefit them, but not as much as some alternative use of the resources. And so, of course, that input from providers is vital, but I don't think that it can be the basis on which you make policy. You know, having, having said all that, I'm impressed that in the recent negotiations, not so long ago for the ACA, the docs had two issues, fixing the SGR and give me tort reform. And they walked away from the, from the table with neither of those. That is fascinating. Do we have time for another question from cyberspace, please? I just want to point out that there's people from Romania on here and Alabama. <laughs> but not in the same yes, place. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, this is from Romania, I believe, from Adrian Toder Williams at the International Academy of Science in the Russian section. Do you think the Obama administration should intensify efforts towards lowering medical bills? The insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and hospitals make huge profits based on people suffering. Who would like to take that? I think it's important to go back to our earlier conversation about innovation, that whatever reforms we implement balance the needs of making public health spending in particular affordable and fostering the life-saving innovation that has benefited people with lots of different diseases and conditions from the chronic to the acute. So we want to be cognizant of how prices are negotiated, how um, innovation is paid for while realizing that the U.S. system does probably subsidize innovation that everyone in the rest of the world enjoys the benefits of as well. So we want to be very careful not to undermine our future health gains while at the same time making sure that everybody has access to basic affordable care. And, and I, just, I just add, so victory is interpreted in this arena as not lowering costs but lowering the rate of growth of costs. And if we can do that and get it to an acceptable level, then we feel like we've accomplished something. And we're still trying to get there, witness Massachusetts, which is now probably doing it more aggressively than any other state or the federal government in trying to enforce that. Well, I think we're just about ready to wrap up. That's a very good point to end on, frankly. Uh, Healthcare is an issue that touches the lives of every single man, woman, and child in the United States. And the last question made an important point, which is that in the, in, in a, in the U.S., our public discussion tends to turn on the facts that it is a giant industry and that it is a giant political ball of wax. But in the future, it seems that we are uh, in for quite a time because though the Supreme Court has allowed the Affordable Care Act to live, though the election has allowed the, the Affordable Care Act to live, the law is now going to face tremendous challenges, a period of experimentation, a horse called sequestration, <laughs> and mortal combat on Capitol Hill. So I'd like to thank our audience online, our audience here, and of course our panel of distinguished experts. Thank you so much. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www dot forum hsph dot org. Thank you for sharing the forum.